This episode of Wasteland may contain mature themes, profanity, and descriptions of sex, graphic violence, and criminal activity. Listener discretion is advised. You know, with 27 years in the FBI and two years as sheriff, I've never run across anything like this before. To bury a cow horn with a leather thong seven inches long, it's got to have some crazy significance. It's reported these people are actually interested in witchcraft. At any rate, we found as a result of checking library records that 75% of all books on witchcraft, magic, and voodooism in Volusia County's public libraries are out on loan. My deputy found the large cow horn in the grave. I'm no authority on witchcraft, but I believe this cow horn is part of some sort of witchcraft ritual. Volusia County Sheriff Ed Duff to the Daytona Beach News Journal, October of 1970. Sheriff Duff, an ex-FBI agent known for his tough-talking persona and low tolerance for crime, uncharacteristically left out one important detail in that interview. Yes, in October of 1970, a cow's horn had been placed into an opened grave in New Smyrna Beach, a town about a 10-minute drive south of Daytona Beach. This grave belonged to a Mrs. Mamie Clifton Mason, who died in 1948. Notably, she was the mother of former Florida Highway Patrol director Reed Clifton. But the horn wasn't just an addition to the grave's contents. It was left in place of something taken from the grave. Mrs. Mason's head. The grisly discovery of Mrs. Mason's remains occurred on Monday, October 19, 1970. However, it wasn't the first such desecration to occur that month. In the first few weeks of October, six graves had been opened in an all-black cemetery in Daytona Beach. A skull was left perched atop a tombstone, but no body parts were taken, Sheriff Duff told the news journal. He also announced that there was a $1,500 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the grave tampering. In December of that same year, a teenage girl, two teenage boys, and two men in their early 20s were arrested for trespassing in a cemetery in Bunnell, a town located to the north of Daytona in neighboring Flagler County. They told the arresting officer that they were receiving vibrations from the dead. It was logical to assume that this group was connected to the October desecrations. Sheriff Duff speculated that it would have taken at least four strong men to remove the marble slab from Mrs. Mason's grave. The five youths were released on bond. In January of 1971, in the town of Sanford in Seminole County, about a half an hour west of Daytona, Two more teens, a 16 and an 18-year-old, were arrested on charges of graveyard desecration. They were found in possession of the skull and leg bone of a woman. The body parts were stolen from an above-ground crypt in a Sanford cemetery that had been broken into around the same time as the other Central Florida cemetery intrusions were occurring. 
After pouring through the articles on these bizarre acts of vandalism, it seems that most of the culprits receive the proverbial slap on the wrist, probation, fines, etc. And it's never mentioned whether Mrs. Mason's head was ever recovered. It is, however, interesting to note the variety of responses that these macabre acts elicited from the public. But even 50 years gone, these reactions sound all too familiar. What follows is a section of a news journal article dated November 14, 1970. In it, several members of the community respond to the question, who has committed these desecrations and why? A psychiatrist says, persons with a predilection toward death, sex, cannibalism. A minister says, a resurgence of the jungle, a part of the extremism of our times. Sheriff Ed Duff says, witchcraft, voodoo. You have to remember that this was the early 1970s. America was still a decade out from the phenomenon of stranger danger and the satanic panic of the 1980s. Further still from the moral panic we faced in recent years due to conspiracies like QAnon and Pizzagate. But what these quotes show is that this type of deep cultural fear isn't new, especially during the 1970s, one of America's darkest and most violent decades. The inconclusive fighting in Vietnam continued to rage on, President Nixon resigned in scandal, and the Arab oil embargo sent gas prices skyrocketing, creating widespread financial despair. Unemployment was on the rise, as was inflation. There were not one, but two attempts made on the life of President Gerald Ford, and during the administration of President Jimmy Carter, there was the Iran hostage crisis to contend with. New York City, long regarded as a metric of American success, creativity, and exceptionalism, was going broke and drowning in crime, as were most other major U.S. cities. It was as if nothing was sacred. And the 1970s was also the decade of the serial killer. John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, Kim Bianchi, and Angelo Buono, Rodney Alcala, Randy Kraft, Robert Hansen, John Paul Knowles, Lawrence Bittaker and Ray Norris, Joseph D'Angelo, Ed Kemper, Herbert Mullen, Joseph Callinger, Carl Eugene Watts, Billy Mansfield, Robert Lee Yates, Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, Richard Chase, William Bonin, Neil Long, and so many more were active during the 1970s. I invite you to look at the Wikipedia page for serial killers of the United States and sort by year. The 1970s seems to stretch on forever. But of course, one of the most infamous killers of the decade was Charles Manson and his family of followers. It is true that the Tate-LaBianca murders occurred in the summer of 1969, but Manson and his followers' trials took place from July of 1970 through October of 1971, and they were a massive spectacle. Charlie and his followers took every opportunity to disrupt and derail the proceedings, but eventually, Charles Manson and family members Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, and Charles Tex Watson were all convicted of first-degree murder. In the ensuing decades, much has been made of lead prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi's ulterior motives and alleged lack of professionalism, as well as his published account of the Manson murders, Helter Skelter, which is now regarded by many as extremely flawed. Still, it remains the best-selling true crime book of all time. Author Tom O'Neill's exhaustively researched 2019 tome, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, 
and the secret history of the 60s calls the original narrative of Charles Manson and his family into question. But aside from the debate on whether Charlie was some sort of supernatural apocalyptic cult leader or simply a burnout failed musician surrounded by impressionable youth, from the 1970s on, Charles Manson was regarded as the ultimate in evil. The story of the family was a cautionary tale. Keep an eye on your children, lest some dark force take them away from you and corrupt them beyond recognition. And in the 1970s, it seemed there was no shortage of dark forces. It was a time when the country seemed to be coming apart at the seams. There was no trust in the powers that be anymore, if there ever had been. Young people had seen so many of their peers go off to a foreign land to die for a cause they probably couldn't readily describe. So the youth became disaffected, seeking solace in the proverbial underworld of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Kids looking for answers were compelled to experiment with alternate and sometimes dark forms of spirituality. If the peace and love of the 1960s was the party, then the doom and chaos of the 1970s was the hangover. And Daytona Beach, Florida was no different. It felt the negative impact of the 70s like any other city in America. In Daytona, where people only seem to notice the waves and the sand, it can sometimes appear that the sun shines so brightly, nothing dark could remain that way for long. Not here. Ross Michael Cochran's horribly beaten body was discovered on Tuesday, May 1st, 1973, five days after he was killed. This was thanks to a tip from a would-be car thief apprehended by Daytona Beach police mid-burglary. And by noon of the following day, police had arrested a group of transient youths known to frequent 27 North Grandview Avenue, the Daytona drug house nicknamed Roach Haven. They were Deborah Shook, 22, Kenneth Francis, 17, Charles Page, 21, John Colbert, 18, Cindy Black, 17, and Howard Wallace, 19. Each was charged with Mike's murder. Nick Frazee, 22, Deborah's husband, was not arrested on May 2nd despite residing at the Grandview House. He did, however, admit to a reporter from the Daytona News Journal that someone was being held captive in the basement, but that he knew nothing of the torture or murder. Arrests continued throughout the week. By May 7th, the following Monday, police had arrested and charged a few more of Rochehaven's familiar faces. Stephen Skaggs, 21, Charles Dunn, 21, and David Hester, 17, with Mike's murder. Police also took in several other individuals who were present and in possession of narcotics and stolen property at the time of the arrests. John Carpenter, 18, and John Gasper, 35. Nick Frazee surrendered on Wednesday, May 9th. Even though more than 10 suspects were in custody, both the police and the media would soon zero in on one of them as the ringleader of the group, David Hester. I detailed a bit of Hester's background in the previous episode. He hailed from Greenville, South Carolina, and his troubled youth caused him to drift into a life of drug use and delinquency on the streets of Daytona's beachside. He was also thought of by his peers at the Grandview House as the high priest of their supposed coven. When David was apprehended, his appearance did nothing to dissuade these notions. He was wearing a patch on his shirt that read, His Majesty the Devil. Not only this, but David had an inverted cross tattooed on the back of his left hand. This, combined with the torture Mike endured and the strange wedding ceremony between Nick Frazee and Deborah Shook that David was alleged to have performed, led people to conclude only one thing. David Hester and his cronies were in league with devils, 
And, in the parlance of the time, with the murder of Ross Michael Cochran, they had done the devil's work. The witchcraft murder, as it came to be known, was, understandably, a hotly discussed crime in Daytona Beach during the summer of 1973. It had all the makings of a long-lasting news story that would pay dividends, a cast of Manson-esque hippie dropouts, occult and ritualistic overtones, and the brutal murder of a young, troubled man. And, at the outset, it was these factors that prevailed in the news coverage of the tragedy. However, there was one small but important detail overshadowed by the grim and macabre trappings. As I said in the last episode, Mike moved to Daytona Beach from Fresno, California to attend the Green Valley School for Troubled Children. The school was located in Orange City, about 40 minutes west of Daytona. I also said that Ken Francis himself was a Green Valley student. However, when Mike and Ken would come face-to-face in the second-floor apartment of Roach Haven, On April 27, 1973, neither young man was still attending Green Valley. This is because the school had been raided and shut down by law enforcement agents a few months prior. Green Valley's doors were closed on February 10th for being, quote, a place of lewdness, according to, at the time, State Attorney Stephen Boyles, who had filed the court order. The allegations were outrageous, encouraged and open sexual conduct between students, pornography in the school library, mandatory birth control, and cruel and unusual punishments meted out by staff, such as being chained and shackled, cattle prodded, and being locked up for days in an outbuilding without plumbing or windows. When the school was raided, the 87 students in Green Valley's care were made wards of the state. A ward of the state is someone who ostensibly has their rights removed and comes under the protection and care of the state government. Despite the alleged abuses at Green Valley, many of the school's troubled student body probably viewed this alternative as even worse. There were two key witnesses set to testify in the upcoming court action against the controversial school. These two would help to keep Green Valley shut down for good, its 87 pupils at the mercy of Florida's state government. No doubt they would be shuttled around from group home to foster family and back again, their already troubled mindsets enduring even more harm in the process. One of those witnesses was Ross Michael Cochran. This episode of Wasteland was researched, written, produced, recorded, edited, and in some areas, scored by me, Michael Paul Anthony. If you'd like to contact the show, the email address is wastelandpodfl at gmail.com. I want to thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. Until next time.